Locksmith Talk with Aloha is supported by Security Pro Supply. What is Security Pro Supply? Well, it's the new parent brand for HL Flake International Key Supply, HE Mitchell, and McDonald Dash Companies. While these great company names will continue to live on, associating them together under the Security Pro Supply parent brand allows them to communicate a unified mission, which is to help you, the security professional, be successful. We'd also like to thank HL Flake and Security Pro Supply for partnering with Aloha to promote ongoing virtual education via webinars. It's certainly been an eventful year, but thanks to HL Flake, Security Pro Supply, and Aloha, educational opportunities have remained available for security professionals around the world. For more information about these webinars, please visit aloha.org. Speaking of websites, visit Security Pro Supply's website, securityprosupply.com. There you will find links to the exciting company's e-commerce sites. You can also take a moment to explore their growing library of educational resources, including the listing of all webinars being offered through Aloha. Once again, that is securityprosupply.com. Welcome to Locksmith Talk with Aloha. I'm your podcast host, William Link. Today's Aloha podcast is entitled Legal Considerations for Locksmiths, and we have Aloha attorney Barry Roberts. Attorney Barry Roberts has been practicing law for over 50 years since graduating from the University of Chicago Law School. For much of that time, he has worked with the locksmith security hardware industry. For over 20 years, he served as legal counsel to the leading association of wholesale distributors in the locksmith industry, Security Hardware Distributors Association Incorporated, SHDA, formerly known as National Locksmith Suppliers, NSLA. He also provided legal services to a number of leading wholesale distributors and locksmith and security hardware manufacturers. For the past 10 years, he has been privileged to serve as counsel to Aloha and regularly provide legal services to locksmiths, both large and small. He has given multiple seminars on legal matters of interest to locksmiths for both Aloha and SAFTA. So good morning, Barry. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's start off with everyone's favorite topic, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek, licensing. What is the current status of various state licensing efforts in the U.S.? Okay, right now there are 14 states that require locksmith licensing of some sort. And let me read to you the list. Alabama, California, Connecticut, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Nebraska, Nevada, New Jersey, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. 
they all have licensing to some extent. In some states, the licensing is essentially registration, getting fingerprinted, undergoing a background check, and they usually issue an ID card. In a couple of states, it's much stricter. They actually require that, you, like New Jersey requires that you either have so many years of experience plus pass an examination or serve an apprenticeship. Uh, North Carolina requires an examination. Some states, uh, well, Nevada is interesting in that you obtain a license from the sheriff in each county, and it's really up to the sheriff to decide who to give the license to. And oh, wow. There are no clear qualifications. Uh, the one common thing about the license is a good many of the licensing regulations were passed to protect the public against scammers. And there are two issues. Those states that require some level of experience or some level of competence, such as passing an exam, are looking to make sure that uh, only competent locksmiths serve the public. Uh, all of them require that you identify yourself have, and have a license number. One of the problems with the scammers is they'll come, they'll perform a job, do inferior work, uh, sometimes install inferior components, then disappear. And the public doesn't have any recourse. They don't know who they're dealing with. So at a minimum, the locksmiths in, the light in these states have to uh, identify themselves to the public. Most of them require the license number appear uh, on all of their advertising on the side of their vans and so on. By the way, in addition to the states that I have mentioned, New York City, the five boroughs require a locksmith license, as does Nassau County, which is uh, out on Long Island. And then uh, I'm here in Florida, uh, both Miami-Dade, which is Miami, and Hillsborough County require that you have a locksmith license. Uh, and there is some consideration in, in Broward County, but it hasn't passed yet. Uh, in addition to the 14 states I've mentioned, uh, there has been a licensing bill circulating through the South Carolina legislature. It's kind of interesting what happened. Apparently, an unlicensed scammer, locksmith type scammer, got into somebody's home and molested a child. It was really pretty serious in the Myrtle Beach area, and the licensing legislation in the state legislature is kind of a reaction to, uh, to that incident. So for the details, look to your, the individual state if you're in one of the 14 licensing states. Also note that the license is needed wherever you work. So that Maryland and Virginia both require licensing, but if you're in Washington, DC, you don't need a license to perform service in the city, but as soon as you cross the line into Maryland or Virginia, you need a license for those states. So that uh, if you're in a city or a location that's near a state line, you may need licenses in more than one state, such as New, Jer uh, New, York, uh, New York City, New Jersey, uh, things like that. Right, good. Well, wow. well, that brings me to my next question then. Do you think there will ever be licensing at a federal nationwide level? It's hard to say. Do I think that I, I don't think it is likely, but it's certainly possible. Aloha has 
had some contact with the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC has passed various trade regulation rules for certain industries, such as the eyeglass industry, funeral homes. Uh, the FT, Federal Trade Commission, has issued warnings about uh, scam locksmiths. They understand the problem. And I suppose it is possible that a, uh, a, a trade regulation rule could be passed. Certainly, it has some political implications. We're in an era where additional, additional federal regulation is not looked upon that favorably. There are a lot of people that say enough regulation. Uh, on the other hand, we don't know what the incoming administration's attitude will be. So uh, I don't see it in the near future, but I can't rule it out forever. Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift things to a more personal, business-oriented discussion. What are the most likely reasons a small business owner, such as a locksmith, would require the assistance of a lawyer? Okay. Uh, I can just tell you the kinds of things we have done for locksmiths. I mm -hmm. have advised locksmiths on the, some of the specific requirements of getting the materials together to be licensed in a state. Also, when a locksmith goes into business, uh, they come to me, should they incorporate, should they set up as a partnership, an LLC, try to deal with them and explain the advantages the different ownership forms. Also, locksmiths uh, enter into a, a wide variety of contracts, sometimes with suppliers, sometimes with customers. Uh, I've had locksmiths, for example, who provide service to a, a large chain of stores that the regular locksmith. We've done a, a brief contract setting forth the scope of the services and uh, the pricing. Uh, they've often come to me with uh, employment agreements. And of course, periodically a locksmith, like any other small business, will occasionally try and sell the business or merge the business. And uh, we'll usually have to assist them with agreements that do that. And there are also sometimes you'll have a couple of guys, I suppose it could be women as well, get together, form a locksmith business. They'll want a partnership agreement. If they form a corporation, we help them with a corporate buy-sell agreement. Uh, all of the, the background information. And of course, uh, like any small business, you're going to want the fine print on your invoices and things like that. A lot of it is standard, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You sometimes want to tailor things to meet the distinct requirements of a particular business. And, of course, the law is slightly different from one state to another. Mm -hmm. So that will give you some, some ideas to where a locksmith might need, need right. authority. And, of course... Uh, they're running vehicles to the extent that they're providing service. There's the usual risk involved with any vehicle, but I assume the locksmith would be insured. And if there is a legal issue, usually the insurance company will assist with that. Mm -hmm. There's an auto accident, something like, like that. And the one thing that is, is good to know is that locksmiths are not sued that often. It happens. It's not, it's not that often. 
you know, I have, have some tips for locksmiths on, on avoiding it. For, for example, <laughs> some of the states with licensing require that you obtain a work order signed by the customer. Uh, that protects you against quite a, quite a, some of the lawsuits I've seen in the past. Are, you'll help somebody get into a car and they'll say, hey, that's not the owner of the car. <laughs> right. Or the house, something, right. something like that. By mm -hmm. getting work orders signed by the customer and getting an ID from the customer, you have some protection. And some of the states with licensing actually require you do, to do that. But it will be a good practice, even if uh, you're in a statement that does not require a, a license. Just mm -hmm. make, make, the bottom line is uh, when somebody calls you to let them into a home, a business, an automobile, make sure that you get some identification and you get some kind of written authorization just in case somebody comes back at you and says, wait a minute, they were, <clears throat> that wasn't their house, weren't authorized to do yeah. it. Yeah. So these are good ideas. And I've noticed that most of them are preemptive things that an attorney can help with. But when a locksmith requires a lawyer for a situation, what would you suggest, Barry, that they look for when seeking out an attorney? Okay, it depends on the type of situation. Like I say, there are not a lot, there are some, but not a lot of lawsuits against locksmiths. There are probably more lawsuits involving the business relationships, buying, selling, things like that. And you want a lawyer in your, in your state that is familiar with these kinds of small business relationships. In other words, uh, you probably don't want the personal injury lawyer who advertises on TV to handle a business matter. Sure. There's not a lot, a lot of overlap. You want to look for recommend, recommendations. Uh, you, you, locksmiths, for the most part, have the same types of business problems as other small businesses. There are a few locksmiths, obviously, that are larger. But by and large, almost all of the locksmiths I've dealt with will qualify as small businesses under the Federal Small Business Administration guidelines. And they have similar legal problems. So it, it really depends on, on what it is. But you want somebody that has experience in the particular area. And not all attorneys do. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, certainly not all, not, most attorneys aren't even aware of locksmith licensing. And, uh, and by the way, I'll give you an, an interesting point on locksmith licensing. In most states where licensing is required, if somebody performs services without a license, even if they do a very good job, the customer is not legally obligated to pay. Ah. was only legally obligated to pay a licensed locksmith. There have been a couple of cases where unlicensed locksmiths have, have tried to uh, obtain payment. The pay customer says, you're not licensed. I'm not paying you. And the customer is one. So mm. be aware of that. Good points. Well, we're going to spend the remainder of the episode throwing out scenarios or situations that apply to locksmiths and are often asked about. Let's talk about liability for a moment. 
Locksmiths are involved in the safety and security of people on a daily basis. So Barry, let's start out with what should locksmiths know about liability? Okay, first thing is I would certainly recommend that all locksmiths have adequate, what I'll call professional liability uh, insurance. Because you never know when somebody is going to make a claim, uh, even if it even if it's a bogus claim, you sometimes have to defend it, and that could be expensive. Insurance is good. Now, what kinds of what kinds of of things? Well, you've had situations where lock where people have claimed that locksmiths have let the wrong person into a home. Mm-hmm. You want to keep adequate records. Who authorized it to show that you acted reasonably, that you weren't negligent in in just letting somebody in? That's why I suggested earlier have a work order signed. And and often the work order will have the person certify, yes, I am the owner or authorized uh, to allow entry into the automobile, for example so that you're protecting yourself. I've seen a lot of, a lot of claims like, like that come in. Uh, the same thing with uh, key duplication. The problem is, and again, it's a problem with a lot of scammers is we've had, we're aware of situations where the scammers have gone in, done the, done the job, like putting in, unless somebody moves into a new home, they have the locks changed, the scammer comes in, does it, does a good job. And two weeks later, the home is burglarized with no signs of forced entry. It turns out sometimes the scammers uh, retain the key. Uh, if you want to do that, make sure that you do it securely and the customer is aware that you have retained the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, another th- area that, that is very interesting, people don't realize these days, is most locksmiths will take credit cards. Uh, Increasingly, the the law is very protective of confidential credit card information. So that if as a locksmith, you have customer credit cards and you store them on your computer, you wanna make sure that you've taken reasonable security steps. The computer is encrypted unauthorized people don't have access to it. Uh, There have been a number of cases where hackers have gotten in stolen credit card numbers and the company did not have adequate security and they've wound up with huge liability. It's just, it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, you you always take credit cards for, you know, for granted these days, but storing that confidential information entails a lot of responsibility. Um, What other kinds of things? Obviously, in performing services, you don't want to misrepresent the level of security or or what it will will do. Uh, We we know that you have some locks that offer a higher level of security than others. Locksmiths should not be representing that, oh, no, this, this lock is the highest level of security and it's pit proof and then a week later, somebody picks it. Well, you, you can see the business owner going after the locksmith. Sure, sure. But you want to be careful. And in terms of some of the documents that the attorney would write, again, you 
might have limited warranties or various disclaimers in terms of the locksmith. The, the th biggest thing is just act reasonably and re responsibly. You know, when when you go visit a home or a business or get uh, let somebody in the automobile, you want that locksmith to act with the same responsibility as if it were his own home mm -hmm. or, or automobile. In other words, you want to take care that you're not just letting anybody have access to it. Right. Well, you hit on a, a very good point there about responsibility. Um, I teach uh, locksmith classes through Aloha, and one is a master keying class, and I have institutional locksmiths in there who may work in a college or university setting. And when setting up a system, they oftentimes ask, do I really have to follow the manufacturer rules? And I'll say, yes, because they're there for a reason. If you don't understand the rule, you shouldn't break it. If you understand it and know the consequences, okay, that's a possibility, but one example would be key interchange. You can't just create a system and throw in master pins because you feel like it. Because if a key is supposed to only operate, let's say for example, the four closets that the uh, janitor uses, and you find out that that key also operates a quarter of the girl's dormitory doors, that is a very bad situation. And I tell my students, uh, I wouldn't want to be dragged into court if I was the locksmith who did that. And the judge might say, why did you do that? And you said, well, I don't know. I mean, that's clear, clearly a situation I would think where there's some liability in what you are doing. You are expected to be the professional in your field. And I always tell my students, I'm not an attorney. I can't give you legal advice, but I would not want to be dragged into court because of something I did or didn't do, or I did do incorrectly. So follow the rules. What is your opinion on that? I agree with that completely. And when you talk about something like that, it reminds me, some of the states that have require licensing have very strict requirements with respect to the duplication of keys. Locksmiths are not allowed to duplicate a key that, for example, is marked. Do not duplicate. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, unless there are circumstances where they can get written authorization uh, from the people that, that have the right to. But as a general rule, if somebody gives you a key that says "Do not duplicate," don't do it. Uh, the same well, thing. Exactly. There's. Let me break in. There's one that I've seen that says "State of Wisconsin, do not duplicate." Well, I think you'd be kind of foolish to duplicate that key. I think the locksmith is making a big mistake if they're doing it without, uh, you know, without getting the proper authorization from the state of Wisconsin. It's that simple. And there are some other keys which are known in the industry as these ultra high security devices and there are restrictions on duplicating the, the high security keys. That wouldn't necessarily apply to most residences, but mm -hmm. uh, it would apply to some, uh, some business locations uh, where you have thing, things that are subject to extra protection. Right, so in other words, uh, it might say on the key patent protected. And the U.S. government can be very uh, strict on breaking patent laws and rules, if I'm correct. 
that's basically in a, in a nutshell. But aside aside from that, the uh, the key these locks of keys are typically, even though they don't say "do not duplicate," the high security locks are typically distributed with cautions as to who may use them and who may be given copies. Mm -hmm. So, if I'm understanding, one of the best things locksmiths can do is due diligence, but also documentation document everything that you do even timestamp things because down the road if something comes back to bite you you've got written proof that you'll forget about but if it's right. written down you've got it now you you mentioned for example that you work with some institutional locksmiths mm -hmm. uh, for example one of the members of the lower board is the locksmith for a large university but in many cases, the institutions, rather than having someone in-house as their locksmith, will enter into a contract with an independent locksmith. And if you are the locksmith, you want to make sure that the contract authorizes you to do what it is you're supposed to do and explains to you if, for example, you need authority to duplicate keys exactly how you obtain that authority so that there is no, that there's no doubt about it uh, and exactly what it is you're, you're to do. So Barry, let me ask you this. What legal recourse does a locksmith have when they provided materials for a job and do not receive payment? Are they legally able to repossess their own materials? Once the material has been installed in a, let's just say, you, you put new locks in a building mm -hmm. and the owner fails to pay, you can't just go back to the building and take the locks away. No, they become a, a fixture. You have to go, go to court to obtain payment. Uh, under many circumstances, the locksmith may assert what is known as a mechanics lien on the, uh, the building or the facilities. We want to take a moment to thank Security Pro Supply again for supporting Locksmith Talk with Aloha. Security Pro Supply is the new parent brand for HL Flake, International Key Supply, HE Mitchell, and McDonald Dash companies. These great companies have been in business for many years and continue to support the industry that they serve. While the existing company names will continue to live on, associating them together under the Security Pro Supply parent brand allows them to communicate a unified mission, which is to help you, the security professional, be successful. One of the main ways they live up to this mission is by offering an incredibly broad selection. One call to any of the Security Pro Supply companies gives you access to over 45,000 items that are in stock and ready to ship to you. This selection covers both mechanical and electronic hardware, as well as a huge selection of OEM and aftermarket automotive keys and remotes. Even better, Security Pro Supply companies have a wide footprint with five convenient locations across the U.S. Houston, Texas, New York, New York, Memphis, Tennessee, Jacksonville, Florida, and Portland, Oregon. Security Pro Supply, one of the supplier that is truly offering a full line of security products to the security professional. Visit them at securityprosupply.com. 
There you will find links to the existing company's e-commerce sites. You can also take a moment to explore their growing library of educational resources, including the listing of all webinars being offered through ALOA. Once again, that is securityprosupply.com. Tell us about that. What is a mechanics lien? It basically says that if somebody repairs or does work on equipment, machinery, equipment, or buildings, they have a lien on the building to the extent that they are entitled to be paid for their work. For, 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 the locks are a perfect example. If somebody installs a, a new, new locks on a, on a building and they're not paid, they technically have a lien on the building. Now it gets complicated because when you talk about liens on real estate, you have all sorts of priorities. But in theory, it is something that, that can be asserted and you, you file a, a notice with the court. The usual remedy tip is uh, for the locksmith uh, to go to court, small claims court. If the locksmith is incorporated, most states they have to hire an attorney to do that. Uh, the other thing that the locksmith can and should do, like most small businesses, is try and get some payment to deposit upfront. It's, right. It's, it's that plain and simple. Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, when they want the work, work done, I mean, you, you either take credit card authorization up to a certain amount or cash payment, in which case you give a receipt. But uh, the best protection you have is money in the pocket. Sure, sure. Well, Barry, another topic here. Non-compete agreements have been a hot topic for many years in the industry. First of all, are non-compete agreements valid? The answer is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Let me go into non-compete agreements. You'll typically have them in two situations. One, when somebody is selling their business, they so sell the locksmith business, you will have a non-compete that says you're not going to go back into the locksmith business for some period of time. Mm -hmm. You also will sometimes have, have non-compete provisions as part of an employment agreement where if somebody leaves the company, they won't compete with you now. When we talk about non-compete agreements, you have two conflicting policies. On the one hand, public policy favors competition. Mm -hmm. People should not be allowed to enter into agreements that restrict competition. But by definition, that's what a non-compete does. That policy is that balance with what I'm gonna call fairness policies. I mean, you'll, it's only fair if somebody sells a business that they should not then open the same type of business right across street the next day. Sure. Now, there are two general rules with respect to non-competes. They have to be reasonable as to duration, how long they go for. In other words, there comes a point where you're going to say enough go ahead and compete. Mm -hmm. And as to geography, 
they have to be reasonably related to the purpose of the non-compete. Uh, if, for example, you, you sell a business that is located in a particular city, let's, let's just say Dallas, Texas, where Aloha is located, you do a non-compete. It's one thing to have a non-compete that says the seller will not engage in business uh, within the city of Dallas for, and typically one to three years. If you go much beyond three years, you risk having the agreement thrown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, will not compete at the city of Dallas. That will probably be upheld. But if you put one in a provision in there that says will not compete anywhere in the state of Texas, they'll say, wait a minute, that's overbroad and anti-competitive. Sometimes the court will cut it back, but sometimes they'll just throw it out. So uh, people asking me for non-competes always want the longest duration and the broadest range, and you, you've got to cut them down. So it's, it's reasonable. And uh, there's always a lot of disputes when these things get to court. Well, you've asked for the whole county, but you didn't provide service to the whole county. So why should I be prohibited from competing with you in an area that you never did business in before? It should be open to competition. Right. Right. Well, let's say, for example, Barry, uh, a locksmith owner spends a lot of time and money training a young locksmith and spends maybe a full six months. He's doing a good job, but he is fired or he leaves. Now, there may be a non-compete clause there, but even if there is, that locksmith is saying, look, I got to work. I got to work. It's my income. Is that difficult to enforce? It's very difficult to enforce. And again, that's what I call the policy in favor of competition. So the first thing, obviously, if you say the non-compete, you want to limit it in time. The shorter the time, the more likely it'll be enforced. Same thing. Okay, let's say the locksmith worked in a particular area, define that area and allow them to compete outside. Now, even then, it's risky. What I typically do is I expand non-competes to include what I call a non-service or non-solicitation. So for example, the non-compete will also include a provision that says the departing employee for a period of one year, two years, may not provide locksmith services minimally to any, uh, any person or firm that was a customer of the former employer. That is more likely to be upheld because it allows them to compete for everybody else. Uh, the same thing when you say will not solicit work from, uh, you don't want a situation where an employee leaves the next day, he's on the phone calling all of the employer's customers. So you put in a non-solicitation. I've had a couple of cases in court where the courts have not enforced the broad non-complete, but they have prohibited the employee from soliciting customers of the former employer saying, look, you know, you guys can compete with each other for any new business but you can't leave and then go attack and try and take away existing business. And again, that is 
just for, for a period of time. After, uh, after a period of time, the courts were certainly allowed to, uh, to do that. So uh, how, how a non-compete agreement is drafted will depend upon the extent to which it's enforced. But I usually recommend putting in these non-solicitation, non-service, and along with that, you put in broad language, will not uh, assist. And I will also tie in confidentiality. See, you don't want a situation where if an employee leaves, he takes his customer list with you because what they will try and do, what they'll do is the locksmith leaves, goes to work for a competing company. The locksmith may not solicit or may not do work for uh, to customers you've had, but he gives a customer list to everybody in his new company, they go after him. You want to have provisions in the agreement that says will not assist or aid others in doing so. It's uh, if you want the complete pr protection. And by the same token, if you are the employee and being asked to sign something like that, you want to limit it both in time, the, which customers, and 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 so on. And uh, of course, the agreements usually should have a prohibition against taking confidential information. And most of, you know, I include in these things in employment agreements where you will define confidential information and typically customer lists. Uh, most locksmiths will have their own internal pricing scheme. Some locksmiths will have confidential deals with uh, you know, special deals with suppliers. You don't want an employee who's aware of them to share that with, with competitors. You put confidentiality provisions in. And something else that I've occasionally done is have situations where the employee, it's a little more expensive for the company, but it, it gives you greatest protection, where the employee is not allowed to use his own personal cell phone or computer in providing service to customers, that they would use only a cell phone or a computer provided by the employer. That way, when they leave, they're not taking with them what could amount to a customer list. Right. So if I'm understanding everything you're saying about this, it seems that a locksmith business owner should utilize these non-competitive agreements in a selective way. Is that basically correct? That is a good way to define it. Yes, I would recommend it to a, a locksmith because every locksmith business, when they hire and train and give employees access to their customer lists, uh, they are taking a risk and they want to prevent it. The trick to doing a good non-compete or non-solicitation, don't overreach. Mm -hmm. It's when you, I've seen more of them thrown out because they're too broad right. than, than anything else. Don't overreach. And of course, the employee should be aware of this too and make sure that uh, they are as specific as possible. Okay. Now, annual service contracts have become increasingly popular over the last decade among almost all trades. So, Barry, what should locksmiths interested in utilizing an annual service contract know about them? Okay, first of all, the minute you say annual, there is a rule in contract law 
that's, uh, it's called the statute of fraud. Certain contracts to be enforceable must be in writing. And that includes any contract with a <clears throat> duration of more than one year. So if it's an annual contract, it should be a written contract. You don't want it to be just a handshake. Then, obviously, there should be a fairly complete description of what the locksmith will be doing, uh, when he will be called, what services he will be provided. Will it, it, will it include any box or equipment, or will that all be built, built, <clears throat> built separately? And then, of course, the, uh, the pay, billing and payment arrangements. You could have, uh, I'm aware of situations where Locksmiths get a flat monthly fee with uh, a few specific additions for unusual circumstances. Oh, I've had such, I've had contracts where uh, the locksmith will provide a specified number of service calls uh, per month under the contract with an additional fee if uh, the client runs over it. And I've had some where you set the fee per for each call. Uh, obviously, the contract has to be advantageous to both sides. From the company, you know, from the customer's perspective, they want the assurance that if they have a problem, that locksmith's going to be out there taking care of them and not uh, put them on hold while they're dealing with other customers. Mm-hmm. From the locksmith's standpoint, uh, the predictability and the certainty of, of some minimum income is very valuable. Would you suggest that a locksmith entering into one of these written agreements share it with his attorney for advice? It would usually be wise to have the attorney at least review it, make suggestions. And remember, the, the reason for any written contract, because, you know, you have plenty of oral contracts that, that work, but is the avoidance of ambiguity and uncertainty. And what an attorney is trained to do is to use certain specific language that has been tried and tested. And if it ever gets to court, the courts know what the meaning is. Unfortunately, all too often where people write up their own agreements, there's a little bit more vagueness and uncertainty than you'll get when it's written by an attorney. Right. Oh, good. Now, you, you mentioned earlier uh, the concept of selling uh, a business. What considerations should, a lock, should locksmiths keep in mind when they're thinking about purchasing a competitor? Okay. That, that, that's, that's a good one. First of all, you want to know what it is you're buying. Uh, the due diligence is very important. You want to inspect the... <clears throat> inspect the uh, the books and, re- and records of the uh, of the seller. You want to know who the customers are. You want to get a good idea of these regular customers, or are you dealing with the new walk-ins every, every day? That's that's pretty pretty important. The due the, the due diligence. Uh, you want to make sure that the uh, if you buy the business, are there any employees that are coming with you? Will they come with you? Will they give you any? Will they sign employment contracts? You don't want to buy a business that's dependent on a couple of key employees, then have the employees walk out the day you take over. 
uh, you want to be very specific when you buy a business as to what is included. What I mean by that is uh, often locksmiths will have tools that they use the business. Many times locksmiths consider the a tool set to be personal to them and not part of the business. Is it included or not? Mm-hmm. And of course, in buying a business, there are a couple of different ways to do it. Uh, If the business you're buying is a corporation, you could simply buy the stock in the corporation and you get everything. Think of it as a big basket. Everything that's part of the business is in that basket. When you buy the corporation, you're getting the basket and everything that's in it. But you're also getting liabilities. You want to make sure there are no unloan liabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are any, there aren't any unpaid bills. The last thing you want to do is buy a lawsuit, which if you buy a corporation and there's a creditor out there, you're taking a risk, which is why uh, probably the majority of small business purchases are what I call asset purchases. If you think of the corporation as a big basket with all the Assets, the business of the basket is you're pulling the assets out, buying them one at a time, the customer list, perhaps the name, perhaps you're buying the facilities or assuming the lease, the, the telephone number. Maybe there's some things you're not assuming, but you disclaim all liabilities would they would stay with the, uh, with the old owner. In other words, it's, unless it's, it's actually part of the agreement. Good points. Now, let's take that in the reverse. If you are a locksmith owner and you are thinking about selling your business, what considerations do you have to take into mind there? You want to make sure that you're going to get paid. Probably the most important thing. <laughs> uh, in terms of the sale of a business, a lot of times, I mean, if it's a, if it's a straight cash sale with all the cash up front, uh, there are fewer problems, but on many, many sales are either you take back a promissory note or you do what, what we sometimes call a leveraged buyout or an earnout, where basically you, for a period of years, uh, the seller gets a percentage of the profits of the business, even though it's still owned it's owned by, by the buyer. That has to be carefully defined. You have to have put audit rights in, in there and uh, whenever possible, try and get personal guarantees because if you're buying a business and you've got the guarantee of a corporation and it, it could just simply be an empty shell, you want the, 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 uh, the personal guarantees, but mostly uh, getting paid. You also want to have a very clear division of of what I call the receivables and payables. Most businesses at any given time will have some receivables on the books and some payables on the books, particularly if you're dealing with a locksmith that has uh, a lot of what I would call business accounts. You You have to allocate those. Typically, you'll use a closing date and say, okay, any money that comes in as a result of services performed prior to the closing date shall be turned over to the seller. 
any money that comes in for services that are performed after the closing date belongs to the buyer. Any money that comes in for services that, say, straddle the closing date will be split pro rata. The same thing, you've got, you've got to be a, a little more careful about um, the payables because sometimes there'll be a payable for equipment and supplies that will go forward. But you have to address those. Uh, is, the buy, is the buyer taking them? Uh, do you have to do an assignment? Uh, are you going to have a be relieved from responsibility so that you don't have a situation where the buyer assumes them, but you're still on the hook if he doesn't pay them? Very good. Well, Barry, do you have any final thoughts for our locksmiths out there? Any legal tidbits of advice? Well, my final thought is I think this COVID-19 business is going to end soon, and hopefully the... Uh, Business will start coming. Will start coming back, and uh, I am a. As I, you mentioned I've worked with the law for many years. Uh, I'm a big proponent of their education. I should mention that many of the states that require locksmith licensing uh, accept a lower certifications in lieu of the of their exams. So I would certainly recommend that. Uh, uh, all of the locksmiths keep up their lower membership and participate in the educational programs. And uh, have any other questions, call or email. Thanks. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Barry. It's been extremely enlightening and I had a good time. It was my pleasure to have you on our Aloha podcast. Thanks again. And okay. hopefully we can have you back in the future. Okay. Thank you. Thank you again to Security Pro Supply for sponsoring Locksmith Talk with Aloha. Security Pro Supply is the new parent brand for HL Flake, International Key Supply, HE Mitchell, and McDonald Dash companies. These existing company names will continue to live on, but by bringing them together under the SPS parent brand, they can communicate a unified mission, which is to help you, the security professional, be successful. Be sure to visit them at securityprosupply.com. There you will find links to the existing company's e-commerce sites. You can also take a moment to explore their growing library of educational resources, including the listing of all webinars being offered through Aloha. Once again, that is securityprosupply.com. Thanks so much for listening to Locksmith Talk with Aloha. As your podcast host, William Link, until next time, stay well.